So hey, take your Bibles now and open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is part 3, and believe it or not, we made it through four verses so far. And I had some people asking me last night, how far are we going to get? And I thought we were going to get to verse 8. We're going to attempt to get to verse 11 today. We're going to attempt. Thank you for the encouragement there. I appreciate that. I think we can do it. I mean, I think we can do it. It's all there. And I'm going to say a prayer, though. Father, I, I ask in Jesus' name now as we study your word that you would make us good students. Even now, in Jesus' name, stir within us a desire for the things of God. Lord, would you clear away the fog of the early morning or the distractions of what's to come this afternoon? Lord, would you quiet our hearts and minds? Lord, your word will not return void. It, it does things. And I am so grateful for Peter. For Peter, just shortly before he would be executed, was able to pen a letter of great concern to the church, of great encouragement and direction, great passion and great insight, sharing from his pain, from his mistakes, from his encounter with Jesus. And so, Lord, we love you. We need you. We ask, God, that you would have your way in this time now as we set our face toward the things of God. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, today is... Memorial Day weekend, and so yesterday was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, three-day weekend for so many, and it's a time set aside in our country and even beyond our country to remember the men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, that men and women were willing to lay down their freedom and to fight enemies abroad, enemies near, that you and I might walk in the freedom that we so enjoy, to remember and even to muse upon all the complexities that come with war and freedom and fighting and battles. Yesterday, uh, on Saturday, we gathered at the CrossFit gym where I work out, and we did a workout called Murph. And it's a workout that is shared and done throughout the CrossFit community around the world to celebrate and to remember Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy died in Afghanistan there with a standoff with the Taliban years ago. And as his story goes, him and his platoon were sent out, and the mission didn't go the way it was supposed to go, and they were taking on heavy fire. And in order to live, someone needed to die. In order to live and survive, they needed to send a signal out with the satellite phone, and there was no way to do so except to call up to the highest point of that particular area where the fighting was going on. And Lieutenant Murphy gave his ammunition to his buddies, and knowing this was his last mission, he said, I'm going to crawl to the top of that rock, and I'm going to hit send and let our location be known so we can be rescued. And his friends knew that he would, he would not make it. But in order that they would make it, he did what he had to do. The workout we did yesterday included a one-mile run and then 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and then another mile run to finish it off all of which with a 20-pound weight vest on. This was a workout that Lieutenant Mike Murphy did daily in Afghanistan training for the missions that would await him. One-mile run, 100 pull-ups, and 200 push-ups, and 300 air squats with another run, just to, just to, you know, light conditioning, light conditioning. 
And then we did that workout yesterday. Some of you know that I'm recovering from working out as well. So I was, you're probably wondering, did you do the workout, Luke? And the answer is mm, a little bit. But as I was working out with the rest of the crew, there's about 20 or so of us that showed up to the CrossFit gym yesterday. And as we were working out, I just kept considering Michael Murphy. It's, 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 it's a tribute for him. And not just him, but the men and women that, that gave it all. And there's all kinds of questions that come up with military and fighting and battles and politics and too many questions I don't have answers for. The reality is sacrifice is what we celebrate when men and women lay down their lives, whether it be overseas or here stateside, teachers and first responders and people who serve others and moms and dads and people who give of themselves for the betterment of another person, who deny themselves so someone else can live. I've never served in the military. I'm probably too old to do so now. And yet I appreciate those who give of themselves for others. And wouldn't it be awesome if each one of us on this Memorial Day weekend just remembered what it, what it means to serve others, to give, to love, to deny yourself, to consider this might cost me something, but it's not about me. It really is about other people. Philippians chapter 2 the writer, Paul, he says to the church at Philippi, he says, let this mind be in you also. The same mind that was in Christ Jesus. He says, I'll just read it to you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul tells us to have that same mindset, to give of ourselves for other people. This is a game changer when you realize this in your Christian life, that it's not just about you, but living for the betterment of others. See, when you live for yourself and yourself only, you usually please yourself and you're not really pleased in the end. Selfishness will never ultimately lead you to fulfillment, but when you live for the good of others and the glory of God. So I encourage you guys on this Memorial Day weekend to appreciate those who have given of everything, but also to be a person who's willing to give to the people around you, to seek and to serve and to save as many people as possible. You know, it's interesting, I mentioned CrossFit, going back into the sermon now today. Uh, CrossFit is something that I appreciate as a, as a fitness guy, for the three C's that I've come up with, there's community, we're there together. There's competition, I kind of enjoy when the clock goes and we'll see how fast we can do it and I can beat everyone in the room. <laughs> and I also enjoy the creativity, the variety of movements and things that we do in CrossFit. They're kind of interesting and outside of the box. And yet within CrossFit, there are margins of performance, we call them points of performance, and there are standards of the movements that we're trying to do that either make it right or wrong in the CrossFit world. You're either doing it right or wrong. We call it RX, which stands for prescription, which means this is the way it's supposed to be done, and then there's other ways where depending on your body mobility and flexibility and your, your fitness, you can scale or modify. And yet if you're like me, when you approach a workout, you wanna know what's the prescription? What's the right way to do this? What's the way this was intended to be done? I want to know it for a couple reasons. I want to test my physical fitness. I want to be able to accomplish the prescription that's written on the whiteboard. 
knowing, listen, knowing that that prescription was written from a programmer and his main goal, her main goal was to help this athlete both accomplish physical fitness, but listen, also avoid injury, failure, to find themselves performing at the optimum and ultimum of their physical fitness. I say that by way of segue to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is now giving his letter to us. It's his RX prescription of what he has learned along the pathway of how to do things, how not to do things. And now he looks to the church. He says, guys, this is how it's got to be. He begins with verses one through five, talking about Jesus and how much Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and that that is the very foundation of our faith. Without Jesus, you really can't move on to the things of spiritual fitness, but with Jesus, you must move on to the things of spiritual fitness. This is kind of like a I'm warming myself up here, guys. I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to be nice and connect with you guys because this message here, man, it's a doozy. And it's one of those messages that when Peter writes it on the whiteboard as a CrossFit athlete, what we do is we show up to the gym, we look at the whiteboard. All right, what are we doing? One mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, puke on the ground, run again. Okay, I see it, you know, and I, I got it. And you begin to anticipate, this is going to cost me something. <laughs> this is going to be hard. There was athletes yesterday. I went halfway through. And at the halfway mark, I was, kinda, I, was, I was mentally prepared to finish the workout. And halfway through, I said, Luke, what are you doing? You're still healing. And I stopped and actually went and got some fried chicken. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not even lying. I got in my car. They're all still Got in my car, and I went and bought fried chicken and came back. It was awesome. And, and I got, I actually brought, set a table up. I put the fried chicken out from JC Market. It was so good. I'm sitting there and I'm eating fried chicken while some of the athletes are still working out. They hadn't stopped. And we're, we're approaching an hour now, an hour. And the guys are still doing air squats and running. And it was, it was incredible. It was and these guys are sweating. I'm like, keep going. The chicken's ready for you when you're done. You know, and you guys should try CrossFit. It's awesome. And here Peter writes this letter to us, and he's telling us, guys, there's things that need to be done before you get to the fried chicken. There's things that need to be done in order that you might grow and produce fruit and remain faithful to the Lord. This is a journey that we're on. There is a prescription. There is order. There's things that need to be done. And if you're a note taker, make sure you're writing on these two major themes of Second Peter. The first theme is don't forget what you already know to do. We're so forgetful. Whenever I read my Bible or devotional or hear a sermon, I'm like, dude, I, oh, it's so good. Was it new? No, I totally agreed with that already, but I just, man, I got weird. I got distracted. I forgot. Don't forget what you already know to do. And he reminds us, he reminds us, and he says it three or four different ways throughout this epistle. I'm reminding you of the things that you already know. I wanted to leave for you an orderly account before I die that you don't forget what you already know to do. Don't forget but then he also, second major theme is to keep growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Don't go back, go forward. Sure, there's things you need to remind yourself of, but there's also new things that you need to grow in, and that is something that we need to remind ourselves in as Christians. If you're saved, isn't it awesome? So rad to be saved. Now what do we do? Don't forget, and keep growing. This is what the Lord wants for us to do. As a matter of fact, I've shared this story before, but 
about a year or two ago, I was doing this workout at CrossFit, and I was beating everybody in the gym that day, which is the ultimate goal, beat everyone. And as I was going through these box jumps, jumping from the ground all the way onto a 24-inch box and standing up and then jumping down, just a series of box jumps within the workout, I noticed the trainer, Tara Richardson, she was off on the side, and I was just beating everybody, and she had her phone like this. And I realized that she was filming me. And I realized she was filming me because she was going to show me the video evidence after the workout that what I was doing, what I thought were good box jumps were actually mediocre box jumps. There's points of performance. You have to have your ankles and your knees and your hips fully extended at the top of the box and you can't be hinged over or kneel down in that way. And so as I saw her from the corner of my eye, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> now, I was still ahead of everyone. I was still beating everyone. I was still getting a good workout, but I wasn't doing it exactly as it was prescribed. It was actually cool because I've been doing CrossFit now for about seven years, and, and I don't like to be told I'm wrong. I don't like to be corrected. I don't like to be coached. I don't like to be told what to do. And so I walked right over to Tara at the end of the workout. I said, let me see your phone. Let's see it. Let's just let's see it. And so she showed it to me, and I shook my head. I said, those are horrible. Thank you for showing me. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for caring enough as my coach. And I told her in that moment, I said, Tara, I want you to hold me accountable. When I'm not doing the press out, when I'm not doing it right, when I'm, when I'm not doing it right, would you tell me? And Tara was so kind. She's like, you know what, Luke? I don't want to tell you you're doing wrong. You, you intimidate me. <laughs> Who knew? And I said, I said, I know. That's why I want you. Listen, I need you to tell me. It's just CrossFit, guys. Don't, get, don't, don't freak out or anything like that. It's just I need you, though, to tell me when I'm not doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing the right way. Now, let's just take that to Christianity and spirituality. Is that the same way you read the scriptures and the way you look at God's mirror? You ever been in a gym before? They're full of mirrors. Mirrors are everywhere, so you can, you know, see what's going on in your form and your physical fitness. The Bible says of itself that it is a mirror. And when we look at God's word, we see ourselves, and the idea is that we would see ourselves as we are, listen, and then adjust to the men and women that God wants us to be that we would look to God and say, would you just hold me accountable? Would you help me? Now, this takes a couple big boy and big girl decisions where you truly do want to be spiritually fit and you do want to be held accountable and you do want to grow and you want to be excellent. You see, at the CrossFit gym, I'm also on staff there. I'm a certified trainer and, and, I, and I help others in their physical fitness. And I was actually ashamed to see myself in this video as a trainer. I'm, I'm one of the people who tell people what to do, and then I'm not modeling it myself. And for you who are moms or dads or older brothers or sisters or leaders in our community or Sunday school teachers, when you ask God to show you your heart, Lord, man, I want to be a leader. I want to be a model. I want to be an influencer. I want my days to count. God's grace is sufficient for us. And so what Peter's having us to understand is the best way to prepare to suffer well, the best way to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, the best way to understand the fallacies and heresies that are coming, he'll address that in chapter two, is to be a man or woman of God's word. Keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To go back to the prescription, to what God's given to you and given to me. I'm going to read and get us to verse 4. We're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to extract a few more thoughts from verse 4 before we get into verses 5 through 11. 
Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to the church, men and women who've obtained that salvation. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Listen, verse four, where we're gonna begin. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter here, verses one through four, is saying, setting a foundation, this is important, theologically, of all that Jesus has done. See, religious people don't consider so much what God has done, but they jump quickly to what they can do. But people who are in a relationship with God must begin on all of the things that God has done. As a matter of fact, every epistle in the New Testament, whether it's Ephesians or Romans or Galatians or Second Peter, all begin with what God has done and then transition into now our response to his work. You see, you and I are those who are now participants and partakers of the divine nature through grace. God has given to us the righteousness of Jesus through the cross. We now have been given those promises that he says in verse four are exceedingly precious and great, and yet this is only written to people who are saved. And so I'm gonna ask that question to you like I asked last week, are you saved? Are you saved by Jesus Christ? Have you, get, have you George DeSoto, we all know, bro. <laughs> I love you, George. Man, I could talk about George for a while. I asked the question, are you saved? And George said, yes. I'm so thankful for what God has done in George's life. George and I went to high school together and uh, got in trouble together and were enemies of the Lord together. And to see George saved, saved, set apart and on fire and being radically transformed day by day. And I would encourage you guys, are you saved? Like George? I would imagine at the 9 a.m. service, the answer is yes, unless you're visiting here Memorial Day weekend and your family tricked you into coming somewhere and you, what's going on here? You said this was breakfast. You lied to me, you know. (laughs) When you get saved, Jesus forgives your sins of the past, present, and future, and he asks you to live your life for him. He asks you to walk with him and to fall in love with him and to be more like him. And so if we're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ and he's done these things, there are still some major benefits to being a believer. Look in verse four. It says that by which, that is the glory and virtue, we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. Three things I want to point out. Number one, we have great and precious promises, okay? If you're a believer, you have today great and precious promises, exceedingly great. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined the things that God has in store for those who love you. Now, there's a challenge within that. If God has made great promises for you, how are you then 
cultivating, walking in, and receiving those promises. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Not only have we been given great and exceeding precious promises, but we've also been given the ability to partake of the divine nature. You're a new person. Isn't that awesome? New nature, new mind, new desires, new Lord, new purpose, new nature. And also, he says in verse four, that we have escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. This world is so corrupt, it is getting worse and worse. And if you're a believer, if you're saved, you have escaped that corruption. And it's important that you know that before we segue into verse five and look at what's on the reader board, what God wants us to do with our lives. First thing I wanna talk about, though, is this promise. And a promise is only exceedingly great and precious based on two realities. Number one, the person who makes the promise Okay, you ever had somebody make a promise to you that wasn't so reputable? Like a three-year-old that promises to clean their room? You're like, I don't know, man. I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt, but so far your batting average is pretty poor, you know? And, 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 and a promise is only great based on two factors. The person making the promise, if they can indeed promise what they have promised. But secondly, it's only as exceedingly great and precious as the person's ability to redeem that promise. You ever found a gift certificate to a restaurant in your junk drawer that somebody had given to you at one point that it only expired and you missed out on that 50 bucks? And it was a promise given to you. Oh man, I didn't redeem this. It was worth 50 and now it's expired. Has this ever happened to you? Or you find something, a coupon, something's given to you and you didn't act on it. It was good. It was worth it. But you didn't redeem it. So the first thing we wanna talk about is the one making the promises. This is God, and God makes promises, and he's good to keep those promises. His love has been evidenced, his power has been evidenced. Everything that God says would happen has happened. The things that we await to happen are going to happen. And so really, He's good for them. He can back them up. He has resources. All the exceedingly great and precious promises are going to happen. That's not even the question. The problem is, the question is, will we redeem them? Will we cultivate the wealth that God has stored up for us? There's a football player named Johnny Manziel. Not everyone remembers him. It was a couple years ago. Johnny Manziel was one of the most hopeful football players in the game. As a matter of fact, he's the youngest football player ever as a redshirt freshman to receive the Heisman Trophy Award. So talented, so gifted was he that he got the award as the youngest player. But you who know the story, and I won't go into great detail, instead of living up to that promise, he began to squander his talent. He began to squander what was rolled out for him, and he began to make one mistake on the field and off the field after another until he went from the NFL to the CFL to the XFL to the non-FL. He's not even playing anymore. And I was reading up about him, and he's gone through divorce, and he's gone through scandal and all kinds of issues. And they even named, his nickname was Johnny Football. I mean, you know you're good at football when they just change your last name to football. And I say that by way of challenge. God can do what God said he's gonna do, and he's given to you, this is what Peter says, exceedingly precious and great promises. Question is, is are you, do you believe him? Are you stepping out in those promises and that power that God's given to you? And here's a couple questions I would ask you. How do you pray? Lord, just protect me today. Lord, just bless me. Lord, just give me just, just enough today. Just, just help me today to, just to make it from my bedroom to the living room. 
And if there's anything beyond that, that's your will. Amen. I mean, I don't know how you pray. We, we get dumbed down in our prayer life. How do you study the Bible? Five by five reading program? Psalm of the day, proverb of the day? That's good, that's good. It's, it's amazing. Probably better than, than, than some have ever done, or maybe than you were doing. Do you pray? Do you read? Do you plan your life? Do you, do you attend church? Do you get up in the morning with great anticipation and expectation of the things of God? Or have you just kind of, I don't know, not that big a deal. What are the great and exceeding precious promises of God? See, these are questions designed to ask you if you have a limited perspective or if you have a biblical perspective of the way things are going in your life. I heard one person say that if your dreams, if your attempts, if the things that you're planning don't scare you, they might not be big enough. Speaking of a life lived for God, your prayers, the way you're asking God to intercede on behalf of your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your community, your church, how big are your prayers? Is it exceedingly great and precious promises or is it just, ah, just barely get me to the living room, Lord? You see, so often we base our faith and attempts and purpose on our own abilities, our own strengths. King David, when he knew that the giant was going to fail that day, wasn't because of himself, but because of God and God alone. King David knew that God would back his play. King David knew that God's kingdom would not stop. King David knew that God's plan would not be thwarted. It wasn't about King David, it was about God himself. And here's my, my challenge for you and for me. How are you as, a, as an individual pressing into the things of God, the promises of God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, God promised Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. And he was calling Abram and Sarah to trust him. He said, if you follow me and trust me, I'm gonna give you the promised land. So what, what, what kind of land is it called? It's the, say, say it like you mean it, promised land. It's the promised land. It's the promised land. Well, how do we know we're going to get it? We got that promise that tell you, you know. It's the promised land. You guys know Abram's story, man. He would never go to the promised land. He would never see it. Him and Sarah would have Isaac and Jacob, and eventually they would get the promised land. It was promised to his generations. Isn't that crazy? So often we're so selfish and so, so myopic that when we look at our Bibles or our prayer or our giving or our service or our ministry, we think, well, if I can't conceptualize it in my lifetime, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I think of Adoniram Judson. Adonai Judson, a long time ago missionary who gave his entire life to the mission field in India. And he experienced almost zero fruit. From my memory, he had three, maybe four wives, all of them dying in succession based on living on the mission field. I believe he had upwards of 12 children, most of them dying, living in the mission field. Ultimately, he would die at sea Yet after his death, the missionary efforts that he began there in India would take root and they would continue. And today there is Bible colleges in his name and there's ministry campaigns spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in India. Because he made attempts, he believed this is, it's not just about me. 
There's more to come. There's more to see in Peter here saying, man, God has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And God gave that to Abram as well. And you might not see it exactly as you want to see it, but you need to have those spiritual eyes to say, it matters how I lead my kids. It matters how I serve at my church. It matters how I pray about this country and the people around me. It matters how I seek the Lord. God told Abram that I'm gonna give to you. I'll read it to you. This is verse 18 of chapter 15. It's gonna be on the screen. It says, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I've given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Then he lists the problem, the Kenites the Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and the websites, and the flashlights, and the termites. Those last three are just our problems, not their problem. And he lists these people that are gonna be standing in the way of the promised land as well. And he said, put, put that map up there, David. Do you have this map? We'll see, if it, we'll see if it pops up. It might be a little blurry. That's going to come up any minute. There it is. Now, you can see Israel there right in the center of that red border on the left there by the Mediterranean Sea, right where it says Lebanon and Israel. They're kind of to the top left of your screen. That's Israel today, Israel up and down there in the West Bank and Gaza and Jordan. The red parameter is what God declared in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. This is the promised land. This is what I'm giving to you guys. As far as the great river Euphrates all the way to the river in Egypt, this is your land. And you can see based on this map that currently they're only inhabiting and almost ever historically have they always inhabited only 10% of what God promised, keyword promise, them to inhabit. Kind of crazy, huh? What happened? The Girgashites. The Kenites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the websites, flashlights, some termites. You can take that, that map down. Interesting. God said, I got it. It's all here for you. Just take it. Wherever your feet shall tread will be yours. Evidently, their feet didn't tread where God had said they could tread. Sounds frustrating, doesn't it? God said, I'll, I'll do it for you. My promise is for you. Exceedingly great and precious. These aren't the way we describe our promises when we make promises. It's, yeah, it's just a normal promise, you know? It's not exceedingly great or precious. I'm just a normal dude. I really, I can't, I'm not good for anything. God, though, makes these promises to you. Here's, here's the problem. You and I have enemies. We have things in our life that are gonna keep us from trusting God and from taking ground that the enemy has taken from us. We don't live in the day of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, the children of Israel and Joshua and Moses. We don't have those type of enemies. For me, the enemies that steal the promised land that God has given to me, they're, they're internal. They're, they're things that I deal with, my laziness, my smallness, my sinfulness, my worldliness. The things that are gonna keep me from apprehending the promises that God has given to you and to me. Wouldn't this be awesome if today, after Memorial Day Sunday, you went home and said, okay, Lord, what do you want from me? How do you want me to navigate forward in my life these promises that I haven't yet capitalized on? The way we're gonna do that, by the way, is also included in verse four. 
Verse four, he says, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Stop right there, eyes up here. Your nature has changed and by the change of your nature, now you can take the ground that the enemy has taken from you. Your smallness, your worldliness, your laziness, your selfishness. Did you know that if you ask the Lord for help in any one of those areas, the Lord's gonna help you? I mean, are you for real? You think the Lord is so distant that he can't reach you in your problems and the things that you're dealing with in your life? Lord, help me to overcome these enemies that are keeping me from walking in the promises by giving me that divine nature. You were redeemed and you're being transformed. I mentioned George because he began to talk during the sermon. But it reminded me of that transformation. And you could sit, and here's the deal. I don't want anyone to leave here today feeling, man, I'm so far off base. I'm so not where I need to be, and I'm only walking in 10% of my spiritual journey. And, and, and there's a, there's a, I'm going to talk about that at the end before I let you guys go. There's a temptation to focus more on your own shortcomings. Some of us will actually focus more on our successes. The real goal is to focus on Christ and his commitment to you. This is such good news. For anybody here, whether you're single or married, whether you're old or young, whether you're where you wanna be or you're, you're way off base, God will never leave you nor forsake you. He's gonna continue the work he began in you. I have been transformed, and you hopefully could say the same about yourself, but I am also being transformed. Raise your hand if you're being transformed, okay? Right now, you're being transformed. You're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is good news. That's why we're still here. That's why God gives us days and nights to grow and to continue to become more like him. He tells us, though, in verse four, one of the other gifts we have before we get into the things that we add, not only have we have promises, not only are we having the partaking of a new nature, but we've also escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And I want you guys to understand that we are not of this world. We're in the world, but not of this world. This world is getting crazier and crazier and darker and darker and dirtier and dirtier and more confused and more perverse and more reprobate of mind every single day. It's like corrosion. You ever seen something corrode here on the Oregon coast? You ever seen something get rust? As soon as it gets rust, it's just a matter of time before it's donezo. And the Oregon coast just eats things up. New lawnmowers like every three months. Husbands have to get new tools every week. It's just the way it is. <laughs> Nothing we can do about it. It's not a problem. But for real, the world is, is corrode, corroding. It's corroding through lust. We talked about that last week. Lust simply is two things. It's an unhealthy desire for that which you already have enough of. It's lusting after more of, of what you've already been given. And it'll corrode you. It'll It'll take you off course, but not only just wanting that which you already have enough of, but wanting that which you have been forbidden of. See, the, world's, the world wants crazy stuff. So do you, so do I. And the word of God has given to us the prescription for what's good for us, what will actually help us, what will make us healthy spiritually. And the world says, no, I, I kind of have a desire for these things. I'm just gonna go ahead and see what happens. I'm gonna see where this takes us. And he says, you know what? As a believer, you've actually escaped that reality. Having this foundation now under, look at verse five, he segues, and he says, but also for this very reason. What reason? The fact that you're saved, that you're a partaker of the divine nature, that you've escaped the world, you're different now. 
The, the, the fact that you have been given precious and exceeding the great promises. But for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, and he lists seven things. We understand this idea of saving faith is the foundation. Now that you're a believer, there's seven things on the board I want you to incorporate into your life. I'll list them for you. We'll go over them quickly. He says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Verse eight, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, that's a warning, is short-sighted even to blindness and has also forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Stop right there. How many of you guys are stumbling? You ever stumbled? <laughs> That's funny. Inside joke between me and Jerry here. A good man stumbled seven times. A good man. Jerry took a, a quick stumble this morning here at the church, and uh, we, we helped him up. And a good man stumbles seven times and yet gets up. And yet Peter here says, hey, you'll never stumble spiritually if these things are yours and abound. And really it comes down to in your life where you're uncertain and stumbling and fumbling around spiritually. Peter says, okay, let's just, are these things a part of your life? Number one, if the faith is there, add to your faith virtue. Okay, this idea of virtue is moral excellence where everything about you is growing more to be like God. You're maturing, you're becoming holy, you're emulating Jesus. The focus is not just on uh, what Christ has done, but the whole package, your body, mind, and spirit. You're growing in your influence and your power, your purpose, your value, your worth, your strength, your determination. Here's the question I have for you. Are you guys growing, adding to your faith virtue? Now, let me just, before I go on to these seven things, Last night I was reading through the scriptures and taking kind of a moral inventory of my own life. 43 years old and walking with the Lord for about 20 years now, maybe, maybe more, been married for 20 years and pastoring for the same amount of time. And as I get older and older, hopefully you also are getting more and more mature in the things of God. Not mature in the fuddy-duddy, moss-back kind of mature, you know, but mature in the ways of, Lord, I just want you to have everything. Lord, I want you to take me deeper. Lord, I want me to, you to take me further. Lord, I want you to use me greater. Lord, are there things in my life, the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites, are there things, Lord, that are hindering me from apprehending all the promises of God? The simple answer, the obvious answer is yes, of course. The question that comes after that question is what are you gonna do about it? Are you really going to lean into the things of God and say to your trainer, yeah, take some video footage. Show me what's going on so I can see exactly my points of performance so I can know if I'm doing this right or if I need to correct what I thought was okay. Add to your faith virtue. Okay, moral excellence. This is what defines you when no one's watching. It's easy to put on a show, isn't it? It's easy to drive to speed them when the cops are around. You know what I'm saying? I mean, when someone else is watching, when the video is going, okay, I better make sure this is right. I gotta judge, you know, I gotta do it right. If you're a believer and you don't wanna stumble, in the rest of your life, the first thing Peter says is add moral excellence, virtue, a depth of power, a character. 
This is only exciting to you after you've dabbled in the things of the world enough and you found yourself coming up short. I was going to do this and I, I took some liberties there and I took a little excursion here and man, I just don't, enjoy, I want to do what the Lord wants. Lord, would you make me the man or the woman you want me to do? Add to your faith virtue. He says, not just virtue, but knowledge. Okay, let's listen to this. This is a deep understanding, not just a passing kind of light knowledge, but this is a deep tested knowledge of God, not a casual understanding. It's a commitment to knowing who God is. And this is gonna be found in three ways. Write this down or consider it deeply or commit it to memory. Your knowledge of God will be known in your word of God, the way that you study and muse in God's word. Because when you know the word of God, you're gonna know the will of God. And when you know the will of God, you're going to know the ways of God. As a pastor, I get asked questions all the time about the Bible. You know, what about this verse, or where's that, or what's this mean? You know, and it's awesome. People are growing and thinking and considering. This mandate is on you also. It's on every single person. Grow in knowledge. Add virtue. Add knowledge. I mean, the world's just getting so, so diverse in nature. And what, what grieves me is when Christians who have faith don't know the ways of God, the character of God, the word of God. And can I just say that right now, God also has a, a perfect will for your life. And it's gonna come from knowing God's word, knowing God's ways, and then you'll know God's will for you. Lord, would you have me to marry this person? Lord, would you have me to move to this place? Lord, would you have me to do this ministry? Add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith knowledge. It's not just a passive knowledge. By the way, look at, look at verse five again at the beginning. I, I forget to circle this word for you guys in your mind. But also for this reason, giving all diligence. Your cultivation of fruit in your life is not gonna happen automatically. You're not accidentally gonna go to the CrossFit gym and do a workout called Murph. It's not gonna happen on accident. Man, you have to do it on purpose. Giving all diligence, taking notes, considering these things. Lord, am I a man of virtue? Am I a man of knowledge? Am I doing this? He goes on to say not just knowledge and not just virtue, but add to that self-control. Self-control, this is control of the natural man. And as your knowledge increases, so must this. This is speaking of the overall control of yourself and maturity, where at one point in your life, you would allow certain things to take over. Certain whims, certain desires, you just kind of answer that call when it rings, and you do these things. And yet as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, adding virtue, adding knowledge, you add self-control. Specifically, the Greek word here is targeted towards pleasure in areas where we're tempted to do what our flesh wants to do. And what Peter says is make sure you're walking in self-control as the world gets crazier and darker. Now, this is a really important attribute to add to our Christianity where we're controlling our, as a matter of fact, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, self-control. I've seen this in my own life where maybe I'm typing out a text and you get it all typed out and you read it and you delete it. You ever done that before? type it out. Maybe it's something, I don't know what, you know, like self-control. I'm going to be different than I was before. Myself would love to do this, but I'm going to apprehend that thought, apprehend that action, apprehend that attitude, and I'm not going to do it. 
Now, again, if you're a believer here, this is very important because you're saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You're going to heaven when you die, and until you get there, what should I be about? I can do whatever I want to do within some parameters or margins, really. And the Lord says, hey, that's not helpful. That's not going to produce fruit. I want you to take that thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's self-control. This, again, speaks towards those areas of pleasure, those areas of kind of wantonness and, and things that come up in our flesh. He says, not only add to your faith uh, self-control, but perseverance or patience. Don't give up. Don't give up on yourself or others. I like how if you're kind of a thinker and you're trying to itemize these, there's seven things he lists. Three in the beginning, three in the end, one in the middle. The one in the middle is this, patience. It's kind of like the spine of a book. It just kind of holds it all together. As a matter of fact, I, I need someone here to hear that on the three that he gives to us in the beginning and the three he gives to us in the end. The way to make sure that you stay the course is just be patient. Patient cultivation, patient endurance, patient patience. Don't quit. Mental toughness, just keep going. And maybe somebody needs to hear that today in your marriage. The conflict at work, the suffering you're going to, you're going to be a successful, fruitful Christian. You need to have self-control when it comes to the areas of pleasure, but you need to have perseverance and patience when it comes to the areas of pressure. The last three now are, in my opinion, a segue. The first three are internal, virtue and knowledge, self-control, patience. And the last three are evidenced outside. And this is kind of important because I think all of us here, Christians growing in the knowledge of Jesus, we'd be quick to you know, give herself a, a grade of some sort in these areas. And yet it's going to be evidence, it's going to be seen, it's gonna be measured in the way that you love others. This is, so, this is a really fun part to preach on, by the way, because the church of God isn't just us four and no more, bar the door, and our little holy huddle Bible bubble. Isn't it fun coming to the, to the warehouse of God and, and, and worshiping and, you know, uh, you know yeah. It's fun, man. It's fun. But it's also fun to leave here. Okay? And go to JC Market. Go to Walmart. Go to Fred Myers. Go to the South Beach Market. Get some fish and chips. Man, it's fun. It's fun to go out. And, and so he says, continue, not just these four things we've already looked at, but he says, add to the, your, your patience godliness. That everything you're doing is revolving around the person of God, that you're growing in the knowledge of God. You who are Christians, someone might ask you, do you believe in God? Oh yeah, I totally be believe in God. Are you bringing everything you do to God? Are you taking your relationships to God? Are you growing in godliness to be with him, to be about him, to be more like him, and to live for him? And I hate to say it, but some Christians aren't very godly. Not in the way you live your life and the things you do. I could even be honest and tell you guys, sometimes I'm not very godly. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm regenerated. I got the precious promises of God. But sometimes I'm only ever operating in 10% of that which God has already laid out for me because I've allowed other things to render me weird. I mean, isn't it crazy that he says in this list of virtues to Christians who love God, add to your faith godliness? Why would he say that? Because there's a reality that you might not be. Godliness. I really think this just means that you're including the Lord in everything. James, Jesus' little brother, would say, don't move, don't sell, don't buy, don't do things. Instead, 
Ask the Lord, Lord, can I buy? Can I sell? Can I move? Can I do things? And then do all those things that God says to do. What you're doing is you're growing in godliness. Your whole world is about God. You you don't make those decisions. Lord, this is for you. This house that we're building for you, this business we're starting, these kids, this college I'm attending, this, this thing I'm doing, Lord, are you here? Oh, it's godly. This is what sets us apart as believers, by the way, not just what we believe, but how we behave. Matter of fact, the rest of the non-believing world, they don't care what you believe. They think what you believe is dumb. Did you know that? They're not impressed with your intellect or your faith that you have toward a thousand-year-old, thousands and thousand-year-old book. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your, your love, one for another. It's these three attributes moving outward. He says, not just add to your faith godliness, but brotherly kindness. Interesting that Peter would say this. Peter, when he was younger, told Jesus that the rest of the disciples were a bunch of bums. The disciples all would make fun of non-believers. Judaism, by and large, is not a very hospitable religion. It just isn't. And if you go to Israel, the, the, the Jewish people there, by and large, the, the strangers, they're not given to hospitality and to love. It's not really part of their DNA nature. They're very, very closed off from that, just by and large, as a general rule. There are exceptions. And so here, Peter, spending time with Jesus Christ, now writing to the church spread abroad in Rome, says, hey, you know what? You need to be, you need to be kind to your brothers. This would be to, to everybody. Wouldn't that be awesome if you as a Christian said, I'm gonna be the nicest person in the world to people that don't love me, don't know me. I'm gonna add to my faith. I'm saved. I'm gonna add something though. I'm gonna add brotherly kindness. I'm just gonna go next level. I'm gonna become a servant of others. Esteeming others is better than myself. Most of us are pretty genuine. We're pretty nice. We're pretty hospitable to people we love. This is speaking to the people outside and around us. He goes next level even beyond that, and he ends saying, add to your uh, brotherly kindness, love. The word here is translated in your scriptures, charity. In the Greek, the word is agape. This word literally means sacrificial love. Brotherly love, brotherly kindness, that's when it's easy to love you. You love me, I love you back. Even if you don't love me back, I'm still gonna love you. But you know what I'm saying? I expect you to love me back. This type of love, he says to add at the end, agape love is a love that is sacrificial and unconditional. Oh, you're saved? Yeah, okay, now go love people to the end. Wouldn't it be awesome, by the way, maybe somebody needs to hear this, that you're allowed to love people that don't deserve love. Sometimes we feel it's, it's illegitimate or it's... A, it's Man, I, should, I can't love this customer. I can't love this boss. I can't love this, this, this person. They, they don't deserve it. And God says, yeah, why don't you try it? Add to your faith love. I did a memorial on Friday for Shane Utterback. Shane Utterback and I went to high school together, and he uh, struggled with addiction, and it, it finally caught up with him, took him out, heroin. And as we gathered there on Friday at one graveside there at Bateman's funeral home, and we had a viewing service prior to that, and very emotional. And as we gathered there at the graveside, 
10 people showed up, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, more and more and more. And my first thought was, what are you all, unemployed? <laughs> Do you have places to be? But really what it spoke of, listen, there was complexities within Shane's life, some thing, dark things, disappointing things, difficult things, devilish things. And yet what I saw, men, women, friends, family gathering there, listen, was unconditional love. Even though there are all kinds of regrets, all kinds of woulda, shoulda, couldas, all kinds of finger pointing could have been done, all kinds of things within a complex death like that, there was love. And we chose, I chose as the pastor proceeding over that ceremony to honor Shane. Because love sacrifices. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love never fails. I told a story at, at the memorial. And it was about a year ago today. It was like May 26th. And it was about May 26th, May 27th, something thereabouts. And I walked into to Liggett's flooring. And Kathy Liggett was there and Kathy Shane's mom. And I walked into Liggett's flooring, had my mask on because we're right in the middle of pandemic. And Kathy looked at me as I was coming in. She said, why are you here? And I was like, whoa, customer service, not so good, you know. <laughs> and I've bought carpet there many, many times. And I said, well, I, I, we need carpet for the Sunday schools. The church is shut down. It's all cleared out. We're going we're gonna to put new, new carpet in the hallways in the Sunday schools. And she said, no, no, why are you here right now? I said, I'm honestly here just for carpet. It's not, a, not the, and, and she said, but the, she said, the reason I ask is because Shane, my son, who, who you and I have been praying for for years, he's in town today. Like today, he hasn't been here in years and he's, he, he's on his way in right now and you're here. And she said, I just can't believe the time. I just can't believe it, that you would be here right now. Because I've, I've been trying to reach out to Shane for years. And as I was talking to Kathy and, and just thinking about that, all of a sudden in comes Shane. And I was able to connect with him. And, and I asked him, I said, Shane, can I pray for you? He said, yeah, you can pray for me. And we, and we prayed, me, Kathy, and Shane right there a year ago. And, and he had humility to receive that prayer. He was trying to find a, a bed to recover in, a transitional house, and was fighting his battles. And, and I share that because I saw, I just saw, and I wanted to share with you guys at this memorial, this love this unconditional love. And we have the freedom, we have the power, we have the mandate, add to your faith now these seven things. And the final thing is love. Add this love so people can know and see that I am real. And the temptation is, is for so many of us to write down items and come up with things and let's go ahead and dissect the truth and are you on the right team and did you say the right prayer and are you in the right place? Love covers a multitude of sins. Love keeps no record of wrong. First Corinthians 13, eight, love never fails. Wouldn't that be awesome if we let God be God and let us just do what he told us to do? Just love people. Let that love flow. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your kids. Love your neighbors yourself. Love the people around you. 
he segues into verse 8. We don't have time, but I just want you to see this. We'll pick it up here next week, apparently. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? He connects the dots now. It says, if you're doing these things, your knowledge will keep growing. He started out with growing in the knowledge of God. Now add these things and more knowledge will come. So many of us have so many excuses and reasons why you can't be loving, why you can't be virtuous, and why you can't have perseverance, why you have no self-control, why you're not adding any of these things. He says, look, you have to add these things. The promises have been given to you. God is good for it. Don't be like Johnny Football. Don't be like one who had so much promise, but you didn't take it. Don't be like the children of Israel who didn't take what God had given to them. Don't let your prayers be so small. Don't let your attempts be so small. Don't let your efforts be so small, but instead attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And if you do these things, not only will you have fruit, but it will abound. I'm gonna talk about this next week. Did you know that God's desire for your life is to be fruitful? Like he saved you, cool. Just like the Lord would purchase a property on purpose, to own it, and then to cultivate it and to develop it and to get the most out of it possible. God owns you, he bought you with his blood, and now his desire is to produce fruit in you, that it would abound, that it would grow, that it would increase. Two ways that fruit increases and abounds and grows in your life, one is through abiding in the vine, staying in his word, staying in his presence, and the other is, listen, through pruning. Isn't this good news? God's will is growth in your life. It's gonna happen. Growth will happen if you stick close to Jesus. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to have his way in our lives and let's repent. Lord, in Jesus' name now, we thank you for Peter's heart, his love for us, that like a good coach, he would give us the prescription and say, this is the points of performance, guys. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're doing. This is the programming for the day. And I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that we'd rise up. These seven areas are so tangible in my mind. They're so tangible just to add virtue, to add self-control, to add perseverance, to add brotherly kindness, to add love, to add these things to our lives that we might not be barren, but instead we'd be fruitful. Lord, I pray a blessing on us. Forgive us where we've been lazy, we've been sinful, where the enemy's taken us out. And I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, you would identify those silly little things in our lives that are holding us back, even right now. Holy Spirit, would you just touch people's minds, show them what those silly, silly little things are? And you'd prune them out, and we'd abide in you. Lord, bless us this Memorial Day week, and bless the kids as we get them out of the classes, and bless the 11 a.m. services as they come in. Thank you, Lord, for all you're doing, all you've done. Help us to have a great day tomorrow and uh, to continue, Lord, to look to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.